I, I uh, grew up in the city of Detroit, and um, I got married in, right out of high school for the usual reason that people get married right out of high school, not planned kind of situation. And um, I was, uh, had, had five children with Nancy, and um, she died um, like in 2012, suddenly um, after, after uh, 42 years of marriage. I ended up remarrying last year, uh, and I'm married to an Episcopal priest named Julia, and she has an a, a adopted daughter, adopted from China at the age of three. And uh, Oceana lost her dad. Julia lost her husband um, some years earlier. So I've kind of, I like find myself in very different circumstances than I did uh, some time ago. I, I live in Ann Arbor, went up to school at the University of Michigan, kind of got stuck in, in Ann Arbor. And probably the most the worst thing about me is I'm wearing Birkenstocks, which like is like an Ann Arbor kind of like, yep, you know, it's like I'm, I look at myself some, I, like what has become of me? I'm wearing Birkenstocks. I'm from Detroit. I don't wear Birkenstocks. You know, somebody like do something to help me recover my true self. So um, I want to talk about uh, connection today. Um, you know, religion has a bad name right now, uh, owing to its tendency to divide us. Um, it seems like the word religious um, most, is the most common modifier for nouns like conflict and controversy. Um, and yet, ironically, the word religion is from the root ligare, um, which means to tie or to bind us, to connect us together. The word ligament is from the same root, the connective tissue. So it's really on us, people of faith, um, to emphasize that faith really is all about connection. It's not about division. So uh, as Brad mentioned, my church is part of a network of churches called Blue Ocean Faith. And our vision as a, as a network of churches is to cultivate connection to self, others, the wide world, and to God. Um, that we understand faith is all about connection. So Blue ocean is a is a connectional metaphor. I never metaphor I didn't like, um, and I like the I like the blue ocean metaphor uh, because like nobody owns the ocean. Um, you can't master the ocean. Um, when you're far enough away from planet Earth to like take a picture of the Earth and that's in a single frame, what you really see is blue ocean. Um, so it's a connectional. Uh, metaphor: The ocean is what connects all the land masses on the earth. Um, you know, like we, we know, we probably know um, more about the moon than we know about the ocean. It's like it's a mystery, and yet it's surrounding us. And actually, like our our bodily fluids are like the same chemical composition of the ocean. So, in some sense, it's in us. So, it's a very connectional um, metaphor. Um, speaking of water and connection. Consider what happened to Jesus when he was taking a dip. Um, the, the text is in, your, um, is in your notes there. It's from Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. And this was like the beginning of the emergence of Jesus as the Messiah in his public ministry. He was like a relative unknown, uneducated um, young man from Nazareth. And he kind of hit the scene when he was baptized by what turned out to be, have been his cousin named John, who was beginning this like renewal movement in Israel, which was under Roman occupation at the time. And Jesus presents himself to be baptized by 
John, and John objects and says, well, wait a minute, I shouldn't be, I should be baptized by you. You shouldn't be, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And Jesus says, no, to fulfill all righteousness, I need to be baptized, which is very significant because it was a baptism of repentance for sinners. And Jesus was presenting himself in solidarity with sinners. So here's the scene when he's baptized. Now, when all the people were baptized, And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. So, you know, in the Christian tradition, this was Jesus' baptism in the Spirit. This is when he was dipped, when he was immersed into the Holy Spirit. And, in, and, it, and it's clear from the text that Jesus had like a vivid experience when he was dipped into the, into the Spirit. And what he was experiencing, interestingly, was all these different forms of connection. He was connected to himself. He was connected to others. He was connected to the wide world. And uh, most importantly, he was connected to God as his father. So let's just look at those in turn. First, he's connected to himself. Kind of interesting that the self part comes first. Uh, The very first words that come from this voice, and we don't know like if it was a voice that was audible, that could be heard by others. In another account, it says that some heard it thunder. Um, This account is like what Jesus himself would have heard that the first words from this voice, which we know to be the voice of God, was, you are. So God is connecting Jesus to his true self with those words. So, you know, we all know um, lots of people telling us who we are or telling us who we should be. Jesus certainly had that experience. It's usually who other people want us to be or need us to be. Um, and, but really, it's only God who has the authority to speak into our hearts and say, you are, and to have it be true. Um, there's a, you know, the last book in the Bible is the book of Revelations. It's like the wild, bizarre book in the Bible. It's really hard to make sense of. Um, and there's a section early on in the um, book of Revelation where the Spirit is, um, has a message for um, seven of the churches that are in Asia Minor, mo- modern-day Turkey, that, uh, that the author of the letter is familiar with. And the, the, the words of the Spirit to the church in Pergamum are these. It says, I will give each one of them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You can't picture that. There's like it's the kingdom of God and its fullness come. And that everybody gets a white stone with a new name on it. And the only one who knows that name is God and the person who receives the stone. So that when the you know voice calls out and says that name, you're the only one who has that name and you know that name. Nobody other no one else knows that that's your name until you respond to that name and uh, that, that comes from the, the throne of God. And it's that, that white stone represents the true self that, that only God, in a sense, has the power to name and to convey to us. So 
what you see Jesus doing, interestingly, when he's um, gathering disciples, is he names them. Um, and he, he names them like their true self. Like he, he comes across this bipolar guy named Peter who's hot and cold and up and down. And he says, you know, Simon is his, you know, given name. He says, Simon, you are Peter, which in the Greek means rock. And then later he says, on you I will build my church. Um, he, he comes across another guy, Nathaniel, who's been like super snarky toward Jesus and kind of like using like geographic, almost like a racial bias against Jesus. And when Jesus comes across uh, Nathaniel, he says, you are um, Nathaniel, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile, which is like the opposite of how Nathaniel was operating at the time. But Jesus saw something in him that Nathaniel didn't even see in himself. And when he heard it, like he, his heart opened to Jesus, he responded to Jesus. That was like the main way that Jesus got disciples is he saw something in people, named it, and they went like, wow. That like, sounds like who I am or who I want to be, and no one has ever seen it before, and I didn't even know it myself. Um, so in the year 2000, um, I was, I was um, yeah, uh, just on my way back from a, a, a period of depression that followed um, my father's death in 1999. And I think actually depression can do some good things if, it, if it's not too severe. Um, it can serve as a form of like hibernation and, and you withdraw and you, you can experience some things. God can do some things in your life in a time of depression that he, he can't do in other times of your life. And I think looking back, this is one of those kinds of depression for me. And I was, um, I was driven by this experience of like low energy and just the old ways of praying weren't working for me to practice, start practicing silent prayer, like a, trying to do like a little extended silence as a, as a form of prayer. And during one of the first, like, wow, something seemed to happen, uh, experiences of the silence, I had, I had like, a, like a whispered sense that was really odd, and it, it was, Ken, meet Ken. And it, like, I don't know, at the time I must have been... Uh, I was almost 50, you know, like a mature adult. And it seemed kind of like, I don't know, just it was embarrassing, actually. Um, I didn't share this with anyone until about 10 years later. Um, and I was like, what the heck was that? It was vivid. It was undeniable. It was Ken, meet Ken. And I came to understand over time that that was actually the spirit introducing me to myself. And looking back, that was like the beginning of the second half of my life. Maybe that's a little hopeful if I was 50 at the time. Think of that as, you know, like, you know, wow, you know, I'm like, a, I'm 64. That's like middle age. And it's like, well, that's a very optimistic arithmetic you're using there, you know. Um, so, um, but, you know, the first half of life is all about mastery, you know, like, mastering things and getting good at things and proving that you can do stuff and the second half of life is about meaning it's not about mastery anymore and that's a, that's like a huge change for people that's that's i think the source of the so-called midlife crisis uh, it's an identity crisis you're moving from mastery to to meaning um you know the the 
self-help is like the big, big thing in the book business, um, publishing. There's a gazillion self-help titles. And we add religion to that, like self-help framework. And we assume that like God's project is to improve our in-need-of-improvement self. Our self is always in need of improvement. And so we don't just do self-help. We do like God help, and he helps improve this self that we have. And the problem with that conception is it places God in the role of um, evaluating our in-need-of-improvement self. Um, you know, he's looking for the shortcomings of our in-need-of-improvement self. And at God best, God becomes like a benevolent critic of our in-need-of-improvement self. Um, but what if we understood God in a different role? Um, not as the one who critiques our inconstant need of further improvement self, so much as the one who knows like who we are. He knows our truest self, and God's job is to introduce us to our truest self so we can like, get acquainted with that person and start being that person. Um, it's all about connection to self, faith is, and it's about connection to others. Um, Luke emphasis, emphasizes this in the baptism scene because Jesus is baptized with others. He's baptized with a crowd of sinners. And he's identifying as a sinner when he's taking that, um, that baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. Um, religion disconnects us from others when we use religion to pursue the wrong project. So there's only two projects um, in the Bible like two projects that human beings can be engaged in. It really boils down to two projects. And these two projects are represented in the Garden of Eden story in Genesis chapter 2 by the two trees in the garden. Like, you know, you can eat from this tree or you can eat from that tree. And what are the two trees? You know, the two trees are not good tree and evil tree. It's much more subtle than that. The two trees in the garden that represent the two projects, the two human projects, is the tree of life on the one hand, and then on the other, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's the fundamental choice, not between good and evil, but between these two different projects. So the significance of this is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day they were really good men. They were good people, but they were engaged in the wrong project. So they were all about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They thought that the religious task, if you want to be religious, if you want to be like a God person, if you want to be on the right side of the moral equation, then your task is to know the difference between good and and evil, and then apply your knowledge to everything around you, just like a judge does. And it seems like such a good thing to us, like intuitively, that just seems like the right thing to do, so we go for that. But Jesus comes along, and he says to these guys, 
This is the wrong project you're undertaking. Stop judging. (laughs) Stop judging. Stop doing the very thing that you do when you're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What What does Jesus say? Stop judging. Stop judging. Come to me that you may have life. So he's all about eating from the tree of life, not the knowledge of good and evil. Eat from the tree of life and then just let that bear fruit and and I think you'll be pleased with the result. Um, So even Jesus, who was the only human being who had the right to stand aloof from the human race in judgment over the human race and say, this is right and this is wrong and this is what you're doing right and this is what you're doing wrong and to make all these discriminations... He was only baptized in the Spirit, Jesus, when he decided to what? To join the human race, not stand in judgment over it. It's when he joined the human race that he felt connected to God and to others and to himself. So if we want to join God's project, we have to do the same thing. Um, We have to abandon our role as judge, as the moral arbiters of the universe, and join the human race in our shared need, in our shared humanity, in our shared humility. So it's all about connection to self, to others, and but also to the wide world. So to any Jewish observer who is familiar with the Israel's origin story, um, which is in you know Genesis chapter one, two, and three. The baptism of Jesus, as is depicted here by Luke, um, this whole scene um, evokes Genesis chapter 1, Israel's origin story. Um, There's the spirit hovering over the waters, just like in Genesis chapter 1. There's God speaking. There's the voice coming uh, as the spirit is hovering over the waters in Genesis 1 and in the baptism scene, then the creation is filled with life. So the baptism scene includes all these elements. There's heaven, there's earth, the heaven's open, Jesus is on the earth, he's in the water. The creatures are represented by the dove. The spirit comes in the form of an animal and a creature and a dove, and then he's surrounded by people in solidarity with people. Um, the, uh, The mission of our church network, Blue Ocean Faith, and it just, it feels like it's your mission too, is to really foster communities of faith that serve revival in like the secular West, in uh, among the nuns and the duns and the people who've turned off by religion and burned by religion and disillusioned by religion, which is really what the secular world is in in a nutshell. Um, and you know, when I um, I had a period of time when I was really strongly identified as, a, as an evangelical. I was part of an evangelical network, and I, was, I wasn't raised evangelical. I was raised, raised Episcopal. Um, and, uh, and then I was atheist for a number of years. And, but when I came back to faith, it was more of a, like a, you know, evangelical setting. And in my world, my religious world, the word secular was bad. Like, you know, like the enemy was secular humanism. It was like... Secular, you'd like spit it out of your mouth. Secular, you know, and but the word secular just means this world. It means this world, this world that we're in, that that we're that we're, you know, Louis Armstrong's that you know, this beautiful, wonderful world, uh, or it means this age, this epoch, this era. 
So I met a guy named Carl Safina. I was at a, a retreat with like evangelical leaders who were open to environmental concerns. And so they were trying to get like the highest level evangelical leaders. There were so few evangelical leaders who cared about the environment that they had to choose me to represent evangelicals and a couple other pastors. The guy who was actually the, at the time, the head of the Christian coalition, a guy named Joel Hunter. He didn't make it with the Christian coalition. But um, why am I going into all these details? I meet this guy... And they had all these top scientists at this thing, like you know Harvard and you know Carl Safina is this like environmental writer. He's really well known. He actually founded an institute called the Blue Ocean Institute, which is kind of interesting in retrospect. But he wrote a book called Song for the Blue Ocean, and um, he described himself to me when we got together in groups. I got the evangelicals together with the environmentalists in groups, and we were you know chatting and. Uh, he described himself to me as secular. He was secular. Atheist, he said. And then he told me a story. Um, he grew up a conscientious uh, Catholic in Brooklyn, New York. Um, his father and his uncle used to go fishing um, out in wherever you go fishing. You live, I don't know, Long Island or something like that. Fishing? There's, there's ocean around here somewhere, right? I'm from Michigan. I don't know. Um, <laughs> somewhere where there's ocean around New York, he, he went fishing his dad and his uncle, and they would fish on Sundays. And when uh, Carl was about 12, his dad invited him to go fishing with his uncle. And this was like a big deal to go be able to go fishing with your dad and your uncle. And it meant going fishing on Sunday morning. And so Carl was like, you know, he's like 12 years old. He's like a rule-based stage of life. And he went to the, the parish priest and he said, I want to I go fishing with my dad on Sunday morning. And is that okay? And the priest said, no, that's a mortal sin. You can't do it. And so, but for Carl, he, he loved nature. He loved birds. He loved fish. He loved his, the ocean. He loved his dad. He loved his uncle. There was a chance for him to connect with all these things he loved and that were from God. And it, and it was like the priest saying, no, you can't do it. And, and to him, it was like the church was disconnecting him from life and that was the last time he went to church as a believer. You know, um, yes, there's, there's evil at work in the world that Jesus came to destroy by works of love, but this wide world is the patient, not the, not the disease. And Jesus entered this world, and he sanctified this world. Um, we don't foster revival in the secular West by saying, in the church, we have it together. Be like us. Like, that's patently false. That's patently false. We don't have it together. Um, like, I didn't get God's heart for the environment from someone in the church. I got it from an atheist, secular guy named Carl Safina. Like, he had a love for this world that was from God that I was tuned out of until I caught it from him. So it's not like I, I had the goods and I needed to give it to him. There's no, there's no us and them. It's really all us when, from God's perspective. So the Spirit connects us to, to ourselves, to others, connects us to the wider world that God made, and it connects us to God. So um, God is a mysterious being. Um, in the Christian tradition, God is understood as one, but in, in Trinity, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And by the way, all three are present and accounted for in the baptism scene, right? There's the Son, the Spirit, the Father. They're all present in that, in that scene. And the idea of Trinity is that you can't reduce God. You can't boil God down to something less than connection or relationship. Like God in himself is relationship. That's what Trinity means. God, God isn't isolated. God is ever and always in community within himself. There's unity and there's diversity within the Godhead, within God himself. That's saying something to us that connection and relationship is like the essence of who God is in his being. And so the experience of this God is an experience of connection. It's the experience of a human being who feels connected to himself and to other people and to the wide world and who hears a voice in his head or um, has a feeling or a sense of knowing that if you could put it into words would sound like you are my child in whom I delight. when, When you feel that, you are feeling this God. Um, it's interesting to me that when, at the moment that Jesus was filled in this, filled by the Spirit, and he, you know Jesus is awesome. You are awesome, Jesus. He's, he's incredible. He does amazing things. He's awesome, you know, ac- accepted. But when Jesus felt the Spirit, when he felt God, he did not feel like the master of the universe. He felt like a child. He felt like a child who had a parent looking after him. The words he heard were the words of a father to a child. In the early church, the liturgies of the early church, Jesus is primarily um, referred to as child. He is the child of God. So last fall, I learned that I'd be church planting again at the ripe old age of 63. Um, Long story, don't need the details, but it was a, the, the need to church plant was a result of some, a painful controversy, a religious controversy with my previous um, denomination. And that as this thing was unfolding, um, I, was, I was like assailed by criticism, like um, from close at hand and from far away. It was like the most criticism I had ever experienced, and I'm, I'm like the kind of person that like, I want people to like me, you know. <laughs> like I, uh, I, it's re- I care about what other people thinking about me, and I don't like to think of myself as like a controversialist or, you know, anything like that. I really want people to like me, and it's kind of like the profile of most pastors. Unfortunately, it's our undoing. But, uh, and you know, when you're getting criticism from all over the place, the pain of it is that you've got your own little load of self-criticism going on, right? And that just, like, stimulates your self-criticism, and then you're like, ah, this is awful, this is horrible. And I'm, I'm trying to sort this out, and it's like the most intense experience of my life. And in one of my little quiet times, I hear this whispered voice again, Ken, you did your best. You did your best. It wasn't like you did good. It wasn't like you were awesome. 
It was like, Kenton, you did your best. And, you know, I mean, how do you know when you're doing your best? You don't really know, do you? I mean, I mean, if you're bowling, I suppose, and you've never, <laughs> never gotten beyond 200, and you bowl 200, you're like, well, I guess I'm, that's my best. But most things that matter, you don't really know whether you, like loving your spouse or being a parent or being a good friend. How do, how do you know you're like giving or being a physician or whatever, that you're doing your best? You just don't know. And hearing that, like, Ken, you, you did your best. Wow, that was like, that was all I needed to hear. Like, in the midst of all this stuff going around, like, that sense of connection with God as my parent and, and the peace I felt from that was just awesome. Um, the thing about God is he knows our humble origins. He knows we are but dust, you know. Um, and most of us have this, like, demanding inner head coach, right, uh, who gets in our face and he yells, what are you made of, boy? You know? And if you ever have that voice in your head, just tell that voice, I'm made of dust, you idiot. What do you expect of me? You know, like I'm made of dust. You know, it's like, all right, that settles it. Lowers the expectations. <laughs> so my, my like immersion in the spirit happened when I was 19. As I said, I had this period of atheism as a teenager. It fit very well being a teenage boy. And um, I was a new dad. I mentioned I got married at age 18 for the normal reason that someone would get married at the age of 18. And as a new dad, I had like an acute sense of inadequacy for the first time in my life. I was pretty good at a lot of different things. And first time in my life, I had a real sense of inadequacy. Like, I am not, I'm absolutely not up to this. And I was in a church called Messiah Church in inner city Detroit. It was actually a church much like into the neighborhood was like this, except for the row houses, the, the demographics in the neighborhood. It was an old building like this. I came into this building. I'm like, oh, I feel warm. I feel good in this place. It reminded me of Messiah Church. I'm in Messiah Church uh, for a Wednesday night Bible study. And um, I had come that night to talk to the pastor because I was super distressed I was actually working on the suicide prevention hotline as a work-study thing for, at the University of Michigan. Why they put a 19-year-old, maybe I was 20 at that time, on the suicide prevention hotline where I'm literally the guy you talk to if you want to commit suicide. I'm thinking, do they know the guy on the other end of the line is me? You know, like that would like put them over the edge, you know? <laughs> um, and so I'm talking to people like, in, in a state of deep isolation, and it was my job just to connect with them. And I had recently talked to a Vietnam vet who had called the hotline to just tell the person on the other end why he had taken the overdose. And, you know, don't try to help me. I, I've already taken the overdose. You know, he was calling from like a phone booth outside a bar or something. And, you know, there was no technology to trace him down or anything. And as he's talking, his voice is slurring and he's, you know, slowing down. And that was like, and then he stopped talking. And I'm like, am I the last person on planet Earth that just talked to this guy? And I, I wasn't able to connect with him. And then I was mad, like, God, why would you put me in the piss? I'm 19 years old. What am, what am, what am I doing here trying to help this Vietnam vet? I don't know, deadly squad. And... I knew that this pastor had a connection to the Spirit. I was a brand new Christian. 
Um, but I didn't feel a lot of connection to God. And so I went to this pastor because I wanted what he had. And after the Bible study, he invited me up to the front of the, the altar. It was like a Lutheran-type church. It was very different than a, it was a different kind of Lutheran church. They were taking in all the, all the Jesus freaks and people, hippies in Detroit at that time coming to Jesus in droves and to pray for me to receive the Holy Spirit. And so they have me kneel down, and, and these other young people gather around me, and they put their hands on me. And I'm like, oh, crap. Now something is expected of me. <laughs> I'm supposed to get filled with the Spirit. How am I going to pull that off? You know? I can't feel diddly squat from God. I'm, not, you know, I'm the wrong person to get filled with the Holy Spirit. Am I supposed to feel something? Or like, I heard about like people feeling electricity, or they're speaking in tongues, or something like that. I don't want to do that. I don't think I can do that. And I'm in this wormhole in my head while people are trying to... It's like the, the worst way to be open to God, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And to get out of that mental wormhole, I decided to pray the Lord's Prayer, which I hadn't prayed since I was a little kid. I used to pray the Lord's Prayer magically. Our Father in heaven, have be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. I do it before going to sleep to keep the things that harass little boys in their bedrooms away, you know, at bay magically. And I, had, I thought, oh, Lord's Prayer, wrote prayer. No, I'm a, I'm a Jesus freak now. I can just talk to God. But for the first time, I prayed the Lord's Prayer since being an atheist. And I just started inside my head while these people are trying to get me filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just go, Our Father. And like a light bulb went on. And I had this feeling that God wanted to be my dad. It was just as simple as that. It was this feeling like God was just offering me, Hey, I'll, I'll be your dad. And like that was it <laughs> I was like oh my god this is this is wonderful this is what I need this is what I want now looking back I think the context of that experience was illuminating I was surrounded by other people who knew I had a need for God because I had expressed it they were praying for me we would just taken communion together after a Bible study, in the Bible study, drunks from the Cass Corridor, the Skid Row of Detroit, were asking, you know, drunken questions that were pretty good theological questions, you know. <laughs> and so the, the, the room was accepting of human need, like that was okay in this Bible study. And then when I admitted my need to other people, reaching out instead of isolating, that's when events conspired to give me that everything's going to be all right feeling like I've got a dad. I'll be, able to, I'll be able to handle anything. I've got, got a dad. Now, it seems to me like Mosaic Community Church is all about connection, too. Like, that's the vibe, you know. Hey, I'm a child of the 60s, you know. Like, that's the vibe I get when I come into the place. And it's obviously like it's in your name, your new name, Mosaic Community Church. Mosaic, you, you guys know this better than I do. It's the art of creating images out of an assemblage of small pieces of glass or stone or other materials, right? The bits are all different sizes and shapes and colors and forms, but taken together, they constitute something, you know, more than the sum of the parts. It's something beautiful. Um, it's a mosaic. And in your church name, mosaic um, is the adjective modifying the noun community. 
So um, this is the kind of community you are, the kind of community you aspire to be, is a mosaic community. Um, Ann Arbor is kind of a heady place, um, University of Michigan, and I had a, a small group. We were having a rather abstract conversation about church. We were talking about bounded set and centered set. I don't know if you guys have heard this language, bounded set, centered set, different ways of being church, bounded set. You have a boundary, and you're either in or you're out, and you have to kind of determine who's in and out of the boundary. But other churches are centered set, where Jesus is the center. It's like putting a warm pail in a ranch and to gather the cats, because people are more like cats than cattle. We don't like to be herded into pens. We just have to like be drawn to the warm milk. But Jesus is the <laughs> warm milk, and that's centered set. We're having this you know, abstract, kind of Ann Arbor, heady conversation about bounded set and centered set, and we're breaking it all down. And there's a guy named Brad in the group who hasn't said a word. Brad's about six foot four. He's like a big guy. He's got these meaty hands. He's, he's blonde. And, and he looks like he could be a wrestler easy. He's a blue-collar guy. And he blurts out in the middle of that abstract conversation, he says, I like centered set because I get to be me. And we're like, Brad just talked. <laughs> you know? And we're like, say more. And he says, I get to be me. He says, I'm painfully introverted. I hate talking in groups. It's hard for me to put my thoughts into words. I don't like to read. The main way I communicate is through music. And as he's talking like this, his face gets all red, his eyes get misty, and he gets choked up, and he can't say anymore. And, you know, people are a sucker for a big hulking guy who starts crying in the middle of saying something. You're like, this is the voice of God. He's saying something really important, you know. And, and when he gets himself back together, he just says, I get to be me. This is the first church I've been to where I get to be me. God gets me. He's willing to relate to me. And the ways that I can connect with him, I get to be me. So something happens like magic. Something happens when very different from each other people connect while maintaining and accepting big differences. What happens is you create a community in which everybody gets to be themselves and have the experience of belonging to something bigger them, than themselves. But they don't have to conform to some pre-mold. Everybody gets to be themselves and belong to something that's bigger than themselves. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing when it happens. So, I'm done. <laughs> uh, why waste time with an ending? 